Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and I want to invite you to go ahead and open your bulletin. If you have a Bible, you can look in Genesis 1. We're going to be looking at a few verses there, but there's a boatload of verses that I'm going to put up on the screen. So um, you want to get ready for that. But there's a place to take notes in the bulletin, too. I'm going to have a lot to say here today. Um, And so kind of hold on. Think with me, and like Mike said, uh, what I want to focus on in the Q&A time, I mean, I'll answer any questions that you might have, but we really want to focus on what the Bible says about men and women. That was, you know, last week's message was about men, this week's message is about women, and so I want to be able to answer any follow-up questions or ways to apply this stuff in life. And so, let's see, so we're in a series uh, called Servants and Leaders. These are the men and women who build the church. And today, I want to look at the women that our church needs to be healthy, uh, the kind of women that our church needs that God, I mean, we could say it this way, the kind of women that God needs on earth in his church so that God's mission can succeed, right? Um, somebody said that, that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And so these are the women that we need in our church. And and before we look at that specifically, I want to introduce you to an interesting Hebrew word. Okay, it's the word azer. See if we have a slide for that. Azer, A-Z-E-R is the sort of transliteration of it. Um, This word, go to the next slide, um, shows up, there we go, about a hundred times in the Old Testament. And I want to show you some of the places where we find this word. Okay, first, Genesis 49, 25. It says, the God of your father will be an azer to you. The Almighty will bless you with the blessings of heaven above and the blessings of the womb. And so, who is this azer? The azer is God. And what does this azer do? The azer brings great blessings in this life. Okay, next verse, Job 26, verses 2 and 3 how you have been an azer to him who has no power. This is a prayer to God. Um, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. And so here in this verse, who is the azer? The azer is God. And what does the azer do? The azer brings counsel with wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 28 verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am azered, right? So is the verb form of the same word, azer. Um, my heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. So again, who is the azer? The azer is God. It really is. The azer's God. And uh, what this verse shows us is that, um, that God, as azer, gives strength and protection to us. The effect of having the help from God is, is worship and gratitude. So the azer produces worship and gratitude. So still moving to the next verse. Um, I'm going to need you to do that in the back. Keep going. First Chronicles 12, 21. It says, They were azers to David, this is the king of Israel, against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and were commanders in the army. So next slide. 
Who were the Azers here? Now they're not God. Now the Azers are men. These are mighty men of valor. They were the commanders of the army that were the Azers to King David. And what did they do in, in, the, in their Azer role? They provided aid in battle. They defeated enemies that David could not defeat on his own. So the Azer comes and helps you either does something that you cannot do or enables you to do what you can't do uh, by yourself. So that's just several verses. I'm going to give you just a quick litany of some other verses on the next slide. More descriptions of Azer. And Azer is someone who eliminates fear in Isaiah 41.13. And Azer is merciful, forgiving, and brings joy in Psalm 30. The Azer supports you. The Azer remembers your best qualities. The Azer makes your plans come true in Psalm 20. And then the Azer gives confidence in difficult and hard times. That's Psalm 118, verse 7. And so this is amazing, right? I mean, in just a couple of minutes, we're looking at you know, maybe seven or eight of the instances where this word Azer is used. And the Azer is God. It's mighty men of valor who aid the armies of David, right? The, I mean, <laughs> I want an Azer, don't you? I mean, I want this kind, of, uh, this kind of support, this kind of fear elimination. I want forgiveness. I need mercy. I need someone to remember my best qualities, right? I need confidence in difficult times. Well, there's one other place where this word Azer is used that I want to show you today. It's on the next slide. It's Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an azer fit for him. Whoa. Whoa. How many of you who have been around the church, some of you, maybe this is the first time you're seeing this verse, uh, but for, for those of you who've been around, you've read translations of this verse that have made you think, oh, wow, what a subservient and worthless role the woman is called to play. A lot of our English translations translate the word azer as helper. Gosh, it feels like it's a lot more than that, doesn't it? feels like just about every other time the Bible uses this word azer, it means something so much more than just a helper. Man. Who is the azer? The azer in the Bible is God, mighty men of valor, and women. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> this hopefully, will begin to reboot your thinking about what the Bible says about women. This is Genesis 2, verse 18. This is the very first time the Bible introduces women. This is how they were created. And today we're going to see what the Bible says about women, and we're going to walk through sort of the whole story of the Bible we do this every now and again because it helps us to see um, the, the themes of the Bible as they progress. On the next slide, we've got, uh, this is a graphic that you've seen before, um, which is really the outline of the Bible. These are the four chapters of the Bible, if you want to sum it up this way. We have creation, where uh, we see God's amazing design for women. 
than the fall, how we've corrupted God's design. Redemption is how Jesus redeems women. And then renewal is how women are transformed by the work of Jesus. And so with creation, we've already seen some of the amazing design that God had for the creation of women with the azer, but there's more. The next slide has Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. It's in your bulletin. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so we see here that it's male and female that God created in his image. Women were created along with men in the image of God. We could say it this way, and we need to say it this way, that God expressed his image most fully in the male plus female combination. It's male plus female that fully images God in humanity. Men alone cannot fully image God. It's male plus female. That's the biblical pattern from the beginning. And there are places where we actually see um, unique ways that women are the image of God. Okay, we've seen the word azer is used. So interesting, right? The word azer is used for women in Genesis 2, and then a hundred times after that in the Bible, the, uh, the word azer is used to talk about God and what God does. Uh, but then beyond that, on the next slide, Psalm 91, verse 4 It says, he will cover you. This is God. God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. And so here God is imaging himself as a mother bird, providing shelter, support, and protection for his children. And so the role of mother is a picture of the image of God. Then Luke 13, 34, this is Jesus talking now. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And so Jesus here also takes this same image because he is God, right? He is God on earth and he takes this image of God as a mother hen And he claims it for himself. And he says that he too is reflected in the motherly care and the concern for his children and his desire to bring them and to protect them, his desire to call them back, uh, back to God and into the right path. Then the next slide, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. This is, um, it says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is the Apostle Paul talking. This is the Apostle Paul imaging his work as a pastor, as the work of a mother. And so in these ways, we see God, the Father. We see Jesus, who's God the Son. We see the guy who wrote half the New Testament. And we recognize that the image of God is manifested in the role of women. And so from creation, from the beginning... As we saw last week, God designed men to lead. And then God called women Azer, which again in our Bibles is translated helper. Um, And like I said, I don't think the word helper does justice to the full meaning of the word Azer. Uh, And so I like to think about it in this way. Next slide, just something you can write down. 
God made men to be leaders, and God made women to be strength. I think that part of the core of what it means to be a woman is to be strong, is to, is to be strength. God made women so that they would be a force, an incredibly strong force for God, so that they could complete what is lacking in the church and in the family. God calls women, God designed women to be strength. Now, here's where the rub comes in. Okay, here's where the cultural rub comes in. Women in the Bible are made to be strength in the church and in the family. Their, their strength is designed to strengthen others. Their strength is designed to strengthen others. And so there's a quote here I want to share with you that begins to get at this dynamic that's in the context of marriage, but I think it applies to the church as well. It's Matthew Henry says this, and it's taking the, the image of Genesis 2 when the woman was created. Um, it says this, the woman was made out of a rib. It was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I like that. I like that a lot. But I don't think that this quote actually does justice to the word azer. Okay, and so I want to add, next slide, and near his heart to receive her strength. Okay? The relationship between a husband and a wife, the relationship between men and women is not a one-way relationship. It's not that men are so strong and they protect and they guide and the woman is just sitting there thankful that she gets anything and that she gets this support. That's not reality. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that a woman brings into a marriage, a woman brings into the church, the woman brings into a family incredible strength. This designed to give strength to others. Now, if this idea that God has created women to be the strength of men, if that bristles your feathers, you are not alone. Okay? This has been upsetting women for a long, long time. Um, this has been frustrating. It's actually, uh, it's been frustrating for women and for not just women, but it's been frustrating since the fall into sin. Okay, from the fall, God's design for women has been corrupted. And so I want to look now at the fall, not God's creative design, but let's look at how this role of women has been corrupted. Okay, and I want to start by admitting that I think the church has failed women in two major ways. Okay, and so next slide. Let's talk about the failure of the church first. The failure of the conservative church um, first is that women, the, the conservative failure is that women are good for food and babies. Okay, there are churches that demean women and that treat them almost like they are spiritual children. Um, they relegate them to the kitchen, the laundry room, and the bedroom. Um, and I've actually been a part of a church that 
actually had an ongoing debate whether or not the church should teach theology to women. Um, And all of this failure of the conservative church, I think it emphasizes a wife's submission to her husband in a way that completely abuses the concept of an azer. Like it ignores the idea of an azer. They, they believe that women have little strength, they have nothing to contribute, and they miss the powerful strength that God has given to women. And, and because of this, churches and families, they miss out. Churches and families are less than when women are pushed down by the conservative failure of the church. And I would say it's no wonder that gifted women have been frustrated and angry with the conservative church. Um, I think in some ways rightfully so. Now, we also have the failure of the liberal church. And the failure of the liberal church is that they say that women are men. They say there's no difference The impact of this is they completely eliminate the distinction between male and female. They make men and women exactly the same. But God did not design it that way. God designed women to be be strength for others, um, including men in the family and in the church. And I think these churches tend to lose men. They tend to have men who check out and disengage. The church then loses the contribution of men and then becomes weaker for it. So this is part of the the failure of the church and the corruption of the fall on the role of women. But we need to be honest and admit that the struggle here isn't just what the church has done. Um, The struggle is also internal for women because many women see what the Bible says about male leadership in the family and in the church and they just don't like it. They read what the Bible has to say, and they're, they're, they're angry about it. Um, sometimes they get angry with God. Um, there are women who, I mean, sometimes they're just actively angry and they fight against it. Other times, like I know women who just sort of like push the teaching about women in the family and the church. They just sort of, sort of sweep it under the rug and hope nobody brings it up. Um, which again, I understand, because like, what do you do with that, right? It feels like it's not fair. feels like... It's, it's frustrating. Um, and this is exactly what God said would happen after Adam and Eve fell into sin. God made a declaration about the way that life would be for men and women um, after they fell into sin. It was like the consequences. Uh, this is what happened because Adam and Eve did what they did in the garden. And it says this in Genesis 3.16 on the next slide. It's also in your bulletin. This is what God says. He says to the woman, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So last week we talked about the second half of this when we looked at men and we saw how men will be corrupted by their leadership by controlling women through active and passive aggression. But but look at the first phrase. This is what God says to women. He says, your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? I mean, it seems a little bit like you're, you're going to be into him. Like, you're going to be into him, but he's going to try to dominate you. That's not cool. Uh, that's not actually what it means. Um, in the very next chapter, we see this same phrase 
in a, in a different story, in a different context, and we actually see much more clearly what this means. In, in Genesis 4, um, Cain and Abel both make a sacrifice to God. And the text says that Abel offered the very best that he had from the heart, from his heart. He, he made an offering to God, whereas Cain basically offered God the leftovers of what he had. So Cain, Abel offers the best. Um, Cain offers just sort of what's left over. And so in Genesis 4, verses 4 through 7, let me just read that, put it up here on the slide. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Right? God reads our hearts. He knows when you come to worship, he knows where your heart's at. Um, he knows if you're here just sort of going through the motions and you really don't want to be here. He knows if you're angry with him. He knows if you don't care about him at all, but you're here for other reasons. Um, God also knows if you're here because you love him. God also knows if you're here and you wish you were in that place that you love him, <laughs> right? God knows when you come and you're like, God, I'm just not feeling it right now, but I love you and I'm here because I'm, I'm trying. Like God sees your heart. He, he sees what's inside of you and he responds. And so God had regard for Abel. He accepted, he was honored by Abel's offering and had no regard for Cain's offering. So how does Cain respond? Well, Cain is very angry and his face fell. This means if you looked at him, he looked pissed. He was angry. And so the Lord then says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? He's trying to get him to come out with it. It kind of reminds you of Genesis 3 when God comes in the garden and goes, hey, where are you? Right? Um, this is what God does. Sometimes God uses questions to draw us out and give us an opportunity to come clean. And so he does this with Cain. Um, presumably, uh, maybe Cain didn't respond, but God goes on in verse 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So he's saying here, if you offer me something that's actually heartfelt, if you actually offer me something that might be a sacrifice, because <laughs> that's what sacrifices are, um, then you'll do well. But look what it says next. And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And so that, that, that phrase, its desire is for you. God here is, um, he's warning Cain. He's saying that sin wants to master you. He's saying, look, Cain, you're kind of walking out into the field or something, like you're getting ready to leave your house, sin is crouching at the door. It's like waiting and it wants to pounce on you. It's going to jump you. It's going to mug you. It's going to club you over the back of the head and it's going to, its desire is for you. It wants to control you. If you've been alive for any amount of time, I think you understand this desire, right? You understand how sin's desire is for you too. It's not just Cain. But sin desires to control all of us. Sin wants to own us. Sin wants us to obey it. And so God warns Cain that sin will control him here in Genesis 4. In Genesis 3, God warns Adam and Eve that Eve will also want to control Adam. Her desire will be for her husband. And so she won't want to be a strength for him. 
She'll want to use her strength to control him. And so, coming back to the next slide, desire in this phrase means control. Desire means control. And so what we see here is that the battle of the sexes began with the fall. The power struggle that exists between men and women uh, in the world, but definitely men and women in the family and in the church, um, it's the result of sin on both sides. It's a result of both men and women falling into sin. And, for, and specifically for women, sin is still trying to control you. Sin tempts women to say, to it, both in the church and in the family, next slide, I don't want your leadership. Like, if you're a woman, you're tempted to think this about the men in the family, the men in the church. I don't want your leadership. Um, or, I want my strength to serve myself. Like, I know I'm strong, and I can do this on my own. I have strength, and I want it to serve me and my goals, my aims, my aspirations. And these temptations, this fallenness, um, this is a significant way that both families and churches get destroyed. And as these crumble, as families and churches crumble, uh, the women who fall victim to these temptations also fall farther and farther and farther away from God's will. They end up cutting themselves off from God's presence uh, because they are opposed, they're in opposition to God's design for them. And there's a place where God himself laments the impact that this kind of fallenness has on society. Um, in the next slide, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 5, it says, this is God talking, I looked, but there was no one to help. This is that word azer again. God looked and the azer was gone. This is what happens when women fall from the role that God created them for, that role of being a strength for others. Um, the good news for us is that there's hope in the rest of this verse. The next slide shows the rest of the verse. It says, God says, I looked, but there was no one to help, so my own arm brought me salvation. So God is saying here, I looked and there was no azer, and so I myself came to be the azer. And this brings us to Jesus. This brings us to Jesus because Jesus came as God, and he came to serve us and to save us and our women from our sins. Jesus came as the perfect azer, and when we see Jesus as an azer, as this strength, as this helper, um, this shows that Jesus isn't just the perfect embodiment of a man. Okay, this is key. Jesus is also both the standard and the inspiration for women. If you are frustrated 
about the Bible's teaching on this, if you've ever been frustrated about the Bible's teaching on this subject, now you know what it was like for Jesus to live on earth. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, let me take you to a passage of the New Testament. It's Philippians chapter 2. It's on the next slide, the beginning of it, verses 5 and following. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there's this call to the church to think like Jesus. Um, And not just to think like Jesus, but to actually have the mind that Jesus gives you. That's what the verse says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, if you trust Jesus, if you believe in him, Jesus has given you this mind. So ladies... If you struggle with this, and I know this isn't just you, but just for you specifically, if this is your struggle, then you have this mind if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, what is this mind? Well, verse 6, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this verse say? Well, first it says that Jesus was equal with God. Okay, you see that? Jesus did not count his equality with God. And it talks about this equality with God and what Jesus did with it. But I want you to see that this verse says Jesus was God the Son, equal with God the Father. Okay, Jesus was equal with God. Now, that equality with God that Jesus had, Right? He was on equal footing. He was of the same substance. He was God. And he didn't count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Gosh, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> um, here's what it means. A thing to be grasped means that Jesus did not exploit his equality with God for his own benefit. Jesus was equal with God, but he did not exploit his equality with God for himself. Okay, what would it have looked like if Jesus exploited his equality with God? He would have said, look, I'm here, worship me. No, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm God, cut it out. Now, bow, worship, right? Right? I mean, if Jesus was God, he would have come in pomp and splendor. He would have come and he would have told people, look, hello, uh, hello, I'm God. Don't you realize who I am? And that's not how Jesus lived. Jesus didn't exploit his equality with God for himself. Jesus was both equal to God and yet lived his life under God's authority. So Jesus was equal with God and lived under the Father's authority. Equal with God, same as God. The one and true, the true and only God was Jesus. The true and only God is the Father, and yet Jesus did not exploit his equality with God, but he instead, though he was equal, he lived under the Father's authority authority. And where did that lead him? Well, the next slide has verse 7. It says, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness 
of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what do we see here? We see that Jesus humbled himself. Instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself. And he took on the form of a servant. You know what a servant is? An azer. Someone who serves, someone who cares, someone who provides strength and wisdom and help. Jesus became the ultimate azer. He was willing to serve. He was willing to obey the Father equal with God and lived under the authority of God. And he was willing to do that all the way to the point where it cost him his life. All the way to the point where he died for the sins of people that even he was better than. And so Jesus, the ultimate azer, came equal with God and used all of his strength to serve. All of his strength, not just to show a good example, not just to show what life was supposed to be like, but enough strength to take the punishment for every one of our sins and to come out the other side in resurrected glory. Because that's what happens next. Because Jesus did this, verse 9 goes on to say on the next slide, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so God saw every single second of Jesus' life and God honored him for it. God saw all of Jesus' suffering every time Jesus had to submit himself. Every time Jesus used his strength to help someone else. Every time Jesus was the strength of others. Every time Jesus humbled himself and took on a role that was so beneath him even though he was equal, God saw it and God saved the world through it. God saved the world because Jesus was willing to, as equal with God, humble himself and use his strength to serve others. Ladies, this is your Savior. This is the Savior who calls you in the church, in the family, to be an azer. He knows exactly what he's asking you to do. He knows exactly how difficult it is to do it. He knows the sacrifice that it takes. He understands what it's like for no one to know the extent to which you serve, the extent to which your strength is spent day in, and day out, week in and week out, the tireless and often thankless ways that you serve both the church and the family. If you follow Jesus, 
by his strength in you, God will exalt you as well. God will raise you up and bestow on you the highest name that he can give. He bestows upon you the name of Christian, which doesn't sound exciting, I know, but he gives you the name of his own son. He gives you the name of the savior of the world. He has made you a part of his family and he is honored and glorified by you. And so this leads us into renewal. This leads us into renewal. This leads us into women who are renewed by the power and the glory of Jesus. Um, Proverbs 31 describes um, a very domestically cultured, amazing woman who has been renewed by the power of God. In an agricultural society that was very family-oriented, you can read Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, and see a description of, um, you know, of an amazing woman. Let me just read you some of the highlights. Um, this woman makes her husband better than he'd be on his own. Uh, this woman willingly works hard. She is both industrious and entrepreneurial. She sacrifices both for her household and for her employees. She is strong and hospitable. She's merciful to the needy. Her husband's reputation is radically enhanced because he is married to her. She is wise and helps others understand God. Her children and her husband are so thankful for her. Better than beauty, better than being a flirt, she walks with God and honors him. And she makes people thank God for making women like her. That's renewal. Like that's what the gospel does in the heart and the life of a woman. These are women that our men would brag about. Personally, I am incredibly thankful for the broad spectrum of incredible women that we have here in our church. I'm incredibly thankful for the way that some of our women are incredible azers at home. Um, some of our women are incredible azers in the work they do in the workplace. Um, and our women are incredibly sacrificial here in the church in so many different ways and with so many different kinds of gifts. We've got women who lead ministries. We have women who support ministries. Um, and we need to embrace this biblical teaching. We need to embrace it in the fullness that God puts on it so that we can both hold on to what the Bible says and not have to ignore it or sort of hide it behind our back, um, but to do that in a way that helps our women to be exactly the women that God has made them to be. Um, and I think for us, especially even as men, I think as a church that tends toward the conservative side of the spectrum, where we buck against cultural trends and say what the Bible says about women, um, we especially need to go out of our way 
to clearly display the glory of our women and to honor them for what they're doing, to show. And this isn't just like, um, this isn't uh, patronizing. This isn't making something out of nothing. But this is actually just describing and shining the light and the spotlight on the women that we have and what they do. Um, God is honored by them. Um, Women, we need your help. Um, We need your strength in this church. We need female azers throughout the ministry of our church. I just want to ask you, um, where are you giving your strength? Where are you giving your strength? Um, You can think about it in terms of the time you have, the gifts and talents you have, and the treasure. So time, talent, and treasure is one way to think about it. Um, You can add strength, the strength Jesus gives you to our church to make us all that God wants us to be. Um, We will talk about this more in the weeks to come, but we need you, women, to be an azer to our elders We are going to need some of you women to be azers to our deacons um, because we will not be complete without you. And so for us in the bigger picture of nominations for elders and deacons, we are also going to be appointing um, both non-ordained men and women to assist and to provide strength to our elders and deacons. And so I want you to begin to look for and to pray about who are the women in our church who are azers. In what way are their azers? And how can they help the elders and the deacons of our church? When we do this, this amazing, I mean, just thinking about um, even Chad and Shane singing here today, right? What harmony does to music is beautiful. Our church is designed, it's redeemed, it's saved by God so that our life together as a family would be a harmonious expression of the person and the work of Jesus. Um, Let's commit to being that. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for the high calling for women and for men in the Bible. And we pray, Jesus, that as our women come to grips with what it means to be an azer, that you would both blow their minds and fill them with your strength and give them the courage to express the strength that you've given them to use their gifts in ways that enhance um, others in our church, in ways that enhance both the men and the women in our church, so that we can be as strong as you have made us to be. Our day and age needs this, God. Our city desperately needs this. We need both men and women who are so busy exalting the other that sometimes we can, even if we're not paying attention, can forget who might be in charge because we're so busy serving each other and following you. Lead us into this. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you would use just our church family for us to come together with a Q&A time after the service, but in further conversations that you would help us to help our men and women, to help all of us to become all that you want us to be. We do this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.
We have time now for our offering. And so